Well, now we're continuing this evening, and there will only be one other uh, on the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, somewhat in lecture method rather than in sermonic form, which is something I don't do often. But in order to summarize all the massive data that we have about this theme, I thought that that was the best way to approach it. And also, please forgive me that I've written it out, which I rarely do, um, but um, here we are. I think it's best for the, for the theme. So we turn again to 1 Corinthians 15 and read the first 11 verses as the backdrop. Ordinarily, as you know, it is my habit to actually expound the text in front of me, but we're going to be taking into consideration uh, data from all over the New Testament as we proceed tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, as we give a few moments to this great theme of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, no greater thing has happened in the history of the world than this. We pray that you would help us to bow our hearts and heads. This is not myth. This is not poetry. It is not saga. It is history. And because it happened, because you did this great thing, everything is new and everything is different. May we as Christians, therefore, recognizing ourselves to be new creations in Christ, wonder and marvel at what you have done through raising your Son from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to, uh, in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised, and on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, last time, we set out the main objections that have been raised against the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. On the whole, they can be summarized by two theories. The first says that the original disciples were deceivers that the disciples were willing to deceive, holding to the greatest ethical system the world has ever known, and that they were willing to suffer, bleed, and die for a deception is frankly absurd. It shows the lengths to which men will go to attempt to explain away the data regarding the resurrection of Jesus. The second theory holds that the original disciples were deceived. Again, this takes various forms, but they run up against the empty tomb and the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Christianity is defined largely by its commitment to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Most people think of Christianity as a lifestyle, but that is far from true. Christianity is not a lifestyle. That is to say, it's not simply an ethical viewpoint or position. 
As Machen has said so often, Christianity is not a way of life. Christianity is a way of life based upon a message. Take away the message and there is no basis for the way of life that we call Christian. Paul defines Christianity on the basis of Jesus' resurrection from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15 and throughout his epistles. We now turn to the New Testament data about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is, we want to summarize some of the more important facts presented in the New Testament concerning the resurrection of Jesus. The data are rather massive, so rather than looking at each resurrection account in the Gospels and other New Testament data, which would take many weeks, we settle on presenting a summary of the data and then 11 matters of great importance about Jesus' resurrection as presented in the New Testament from that data. So first, let's give a summary of the data, the New Testament accounts of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Now, there are 11 of them, 12, depending upon how you count them. First, the appearances to Mary Magdalene, as we find in John's Gospel. Secondly, the appearance to the women on their way to tell the disciples about Jesus' resurrection, which we have recently seen in Matthew. Thirdly, the appearance to Peter, as we find in Luke 24, 34, and Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 and 6. Fourthly, the appearance to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, we find in Luke. Fifthly, the appearance to the disciples assembled on the resurrection evening, we find that in Luke and in John and in Paul. Sixthly, a second appearance to the eleven eight days after, as John puts it in his gospel, when Thomas was not present with them. Seventh, an appearance to seven disciples at the Lake of Galilee, mentioned by John. Eighthly, the appearance to over 500 brethren at one time. Paul mentions that in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, and that also probably encompasses when the Great Commission takes place in Matthew. The ninth is the appearance to James, the brother of our Lord, mentioned by Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15. The tenth is the final appearance to the eleven. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians. That's the same meeting that Luke speaks of just prior to the ascension. And then the eleventh is the appearance to the apostle Paul himself, as mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 15 and also in the book of Acts. Now that's a lot of data. And had we spent every Sunday night looking at each of these passages, we would be in this for quite some time, would we not? Now, we do not have time to look at each account, but note that five of the appearances were to the eleven, that is, to the disciples who had known him and walked with him through his earthly ministry. Admittedly, it is sometimes difficult to know just how the accounts fit together, and that is because each New Testament author has his own reason for including or excluding certain data from his account, so that no one account has all the data and because data may be lacking for putting together a total picture. Yet many attempts have been made to understand how the materials fit. Uh, many of them, I think, have been quite successful. The fact that it may be somewhat difficult to fit together some of the data should not disturb us. And if you would be patient for me a moment, I want to turn to one of the old books on the resurrection of Jesus by Professor James Orr and read a couple of interesting things to you. Um, 
Orr says, in the narratives, however credible in origin and substance, it is clearly as hopeless as it is unfair to adopt the methods of pedophaging attorney, bent at all costs on tripping the witnesses up on small details. No two of the evangelists agree precisely in the terms they employ as to the time of the visit of the women to the tomb. Yet, in all four, it is plainly implied that the visit took place in early morning when dawn was merging into day and that it was full daylight before the visit was completed. One evangelist names certain women, others add a name or two more, names familiar in all the accounts. How small such points are as the basis of a charge of irreconcilable contradictions. How few statements of public events, even where stricter accuracy of expression is aimed at, could endure to have such methods applied to them. Two examples may illustrate. Professor Huxley was a man of scientific mind from whom accurate statement is an ordinary, in an ordinary narrative of fact might justly be expected. It happens, however, that in Huxley's Darwiniana, the scientist makes two references in different papers to the origin of the breed of a certain kind of sheep. It is instructive to put these two passages side by side. Here's the first. With the acuteness characteristic of their nation, the neighbors of the Massachusetts farmer imagined that it would be an excellent thing if all his sheep were imbued with the stay-at-home tendencies enforced by nature on the newly arrived ram, and they advised Wright to kill the old patriarch of his fold and install the Ancon or Anson, somebody who knows sheep can tell me, ram in his place. The result justified their sagacious anticipation. Now here's the second account, also by Huxley. It occurred to Seth Wright, who was, like his successors, more or less acute, that if he could get a stock of sheep like those with the bandy legs, they would not be able to jump over the fences so readily, and he acted upon that idea. Here manifestly are discrepancies which on critical principles should discredit the whole story. In the latter narrative, we have Seth Wright alone and the former neighbors. The second narrative, we might say, in the unusual style, knows nothing of neighbors. The longer version is plainly a later ex expansion. Now, he's toying with New Testament scholars there, if you didn't get that. In the latter, the idea is Seth Wright's very own, the product of his own acuteness. In the other, the acuteness is wholly in the neighbors, and Seth Wright only acts on their advice. Yet how contemptuously would any sensible person scout such hypercriticism? So we have two different accounts. Both of them would seem to be uh, discrepant and yet easily reconciled. Now here's another one, and you students I think will like this. A second instructive example is furnished in a recent issue of Bibliotheca Sacra. A class in history was studying the French Revolution, and the pupils were asked to look the matter up and report the next day by what vote Louis XVI was condemned. Nearly half the class reported that the vote was unanimous. A considerable number protested that he was condemned by a majority of one. A few gave the majority of 145 in a vote of 721. How utterly irreconcilable these reports seemed. Yet, for each the authority of reputable historians could be given. In fact, all were true, 
and the full truth was a combination of all three. On the first vote as to the king's guilt, there was no contrary voice. Some tell only of this. The vote of the penalty was given individually with reasons of and a majority of 145 declared for the death penalty at once or after peace was made with Austria or after confirmation by the people. The votes for immediate death were only 361 as against 360. So all of the accounts are reconcilable, though all of them differed. History abounds with such illustrations and or goes on. I think that's what you're dealing with with the Gospels as well. Not discrepancies, but selected arranged materials in which we simply do not have all the data, but the data nonetheless is clearly reconcilable. Now let me point out, because we can't look at all of these various places in the New Testament, 11 matters of importance in the New Testament data regarding Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Eleven things. Here's the first. The place of the resurrection in early Christian preaching. The earliest preaching of the church was alive with the message of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 was written around 55 A.D. And Paul is telling us that what he preaches is the common Christian tradition. This means that the early Christian preaching on the resurrection is dated back to the event itself. It was not long in coming. Number two, the importance of the word buried in 1 Corinthians 15. The mention of the burial of Jesus in the gospel accounts and in 1 Corinthians 15 is very important because it helps to define the nature of the resurrection. The same body that was placed in the tomb was raised from the dead and came out of the tomb. Modern attempts to say that the resurrection is simply spiritual, by which is meant non-corporeal, or that Christ is risen in the faith of believers is not tenable. Those who hold such views should not speak of a resurrection at all. Jesus was really dead, was really buried, and really rose from the dead. The third fact that is important in all of this data is that the resurrection is the explanation for the change of the Sabbath. Now, what do I mean by that? What is recorded in 1 Corinthians 15 and other texts is the explanation of the change from the Jewish Sabbath to the Christian Lord's Day, worship on the first day of the week. The text says that Jesus was raised on the third day, 1 Corinthians verse 4, 15 verse 4. What could have enticed Jews to change the day and emphasis from the Jewish Sabbath to the Christian Lord's Day? Only one thing, the sheer magnitude of what happened on the third day after Jesus' death. Every Sunday is a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The fourth bit of data that's important in understanding the resurrection of Jesus is the perfect tense of the verb was raised in 1 Corinthians 15. We find that in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 15 that he was buried and that he was raised. That's a perfect tense of the verb. This perfect tense of the verb, this perfect passive, connotes he has been raised and lives. Or to put it in another way, the perfect tense means he has been raised and continues to be raised. 
He has been raised and continues in resurrection life. He rose from the dead and remains raised, remains living. And so the sermon is in the grammar, an important little bit of data. The fifth thing that we see as we look at all of these various accounts is the importance of the inclusion of women in the accounts, especially the Gospels. There are around a dozen accounts, as we have seen, regarding the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament, which is a matter of significance in and of itself. The Gospel accounts include women. Indeed, women are not only included, but women are prominent in the accounts in the Gospels. And this is an important factor in the integrity of the biblical accounts. Sadly, women in this day were not even permitted to be witnesses in courts of law. The honesty of the New Testament accounts is highlighted by the inclusion of women in the accounts. In the ancient world, to record this is a way of not encouraging at least some segments of society to believe what has been written by the New Testament writers. But the New Testament writers do not shy away from including what, after all, is simply historical. The relation of the women to the resurrection is too important to pass by. The sixth bit of data to be gathered from all of this, going back to 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment, is that the Apostle Paul says that over 500 witnesses witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, or the resurrected Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 5 and 6, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So, more than 500 witnesses saw the risen Lord at one time, many of whom were still living when Paul wrote his words. Had there been an investigative reporter, it would have been a simple matter of looking them up and interviewing them. Put it another way, if someone wanted to discredit Paul's words, it would have been a relatively simple matter of going to these people and asking them. Paul is unafraid as he includes this detail because it is a stubborn fact. The seventh thing I think that is important is the integrity of the witnesses. The witnesses singled out by Paul in this most important text of 1 Corinthians 15 were of unimpeachable character. Note, he says, he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The apostle then mentions the resurrection appearances to Peter, and then to the disciples as a whole, to the 500 plus witnesses, and then he notes that he appeared also to James, that is the brother of the Lord Jesus, and to himself. These witnesses were of unimpeachable character as witnesses. They included the disciples and Jesus' half-brother James. And when we add to this the weight of the great personal cost with which they spread the message of the resurrection of Jesus, the opposition to the accounts of Jesus' resurrection are seen to be thoroughly inadequate to explain the phenomena. To put it another way, the fact that there is a Christian church that proclaims the resurrection is only explicable because Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. Now get this. These are the witnesses, and it included the half-brother of the Lord Jesus himself. 
who did not believe when Jesus walked upon this earth in his earthly ministry, but came to believe after he saw his half-brother raised from the dead. The eighth thing I think that's important in all of this data is the importance of the mention of the third day. He rose on the third day. Now, the New Testament claims that Jesus rose on the third day, and Paul writes in that all-important text that we've been looking at, 1 Corinthians 15, where I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Many scholars have noted that myths take time to grow, uh, often many centuries. But Paul's words were written a short while after the resurrection, around 55 A.D. That's essentially 25 years after these events took place. And Paul includes the important deliverance that the resurrection of Jesus was on the third day. The resurrection was immediately believed, in other words, It required and allowed no time for legendary elements to evolve or for mythology to grow up around it. Jesus rose, he was seen, he was believed immediately. The ninth bit of data that I think is important as we look at all of this is the importance of Jesus' resurrection appearances in Jerusalem. Jesus appeared to his disciples after he rose from the dead in Jerusalem itself. Had he not risen, the news of his resurrection certainly would not have been proclaimed there. Just a simple matter of producing the body would have squelched the whole idea. But it was not an idea. It was an historical fact. The tenth bit of data that is important is physical contact with the risen Lord. Uh, This, I think, is very crucial. The New Testament accounts say that the followers of Jesus who saw him after his resurrection, many of them at least, ate with him, talked with him, and even touched him. This was no mere vision. He says to Thomas, touch me, put your hands in my nail-scarred hands, touch the open wound in my side. And when Thomas did that, he cried out, my Lord and my God. And then the eleventh thing of great importance is this. Paul himself. Do you know who Paul was? Saul of Tarsus was the most bitter enemy of Christianity. A careful reasoner who severely persecuted the church with no qualms of conscience whatsoever. There is no indication of some romantic view about the Apostle Paul that he was under conviction while he was persecuting Christians. Far from it. He thought he was doing God a favor. In laying waste the church, he thought he was serving the Lord. Then something happened. What was that? He saw Jesus, who was raised from the dead. He turned from his persecuting lifestyle. His hatred for Christ and for his people turned to love. And he suffered happily for Christ the rest of his life, spreading the news that Jesus was alive. And the Apostle Paul tells us what his suffering for the Savior was like. He tells us in many places, but um, just take, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when he says, 
uh, beginning in, oh, say, verse 23, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often mere death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Now, that is how Paul describes his own sufferings for the sake of the gospel, and his ministry is not anywhere near over when he writes that. The Apostle Paul, what a changed man he was. If you deny the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the question must be asked, what do you do with Paul? What intellectually, morally honest response can you give to the question, what do you do with Paul? Do you think that Paul willingly, without overwhelming reason, gave up the, pres the prestige of his rabbinic respect and took upon himself the torment of being scourged and stoned to keep up a ruse? Why did he go around the world preaching, I believe Jesus rose from the dead? Come on, bring your stones. Why did he do that? What happened to Paul? And what happened deserves more attention, and so we'll look at that next week. That'll be the last of what I've been doing on the resurrection. We'll look at Paul and the resurrection next week. But for now, as we've looked at the New Testament data regarding Christ's resurrection, let me point out that it is no new thing to question the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The story of the stolen body of Jesus that we talked about last time and saw in Matthew 28 was still being told in the days of Justin Martyr. That was around, he lived from 100 to about 165 A.D., you can find that in his dialogue with Trypho. Origen, whose dates were about 184, 253, or 254, answered Celsus, who said there were contradictions in the accounts of the Gospels, which there aren't. The deists of the 18th century and the German critics of the 19th century leveled their guns at the resurrection of Jesus. And the same old arguments continue to surface despite the stellar answers that have been given by Christian scholars through the centuries. And now the postmodern mind brings its own objections to any idea of authority determinative of our thinking, and we find here that the postmodern is just modern gone to seed. Now what are we to say to all of this? Let me make two final comments. Here they are. The first is this. Man outside of Christ, born in sin, has an axe to grind. As I pointed out to you last time, we simply cannot prove to someone that Jesus rose from the dead because this is not essentially an intellectual question, but a moral one. I've not been arguing for the probability of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. As a believer in Christ, I believe in the resurrection because it is revealed in the Bible, God's Word, and my heart has been opened to receive the truth by the Holy Spirit. 
But as we have presented the data of the New Testament and have been showing the, the failure to believe in the resurrection is not rational, we need to ask the question, why do men not believe these things? That we can do. We can show to an unbeliever that failure to believe in the resurrection of Jesus is not rational. The New Testament is plain. Men do not believe in the resurrection and do not trust in Christ because of our fallen human nature and because we do not want to give up our autonomy, because we do not want Jesus to rule over us. And when the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart, the objections fade away. To put it another way, it is important to answer objections because we want to make plain that the problem is not with the data, but with the heart called to receive and interpret the data. Man has an axe to grind, a reason of the heart not to believe in the resurrection rather than a truly rational objection. Second point, I want to encourage you believers to look upon Jesus himself because believers are still sinners and believers, it is possible for us to struggle with doubts also. What should we do when that happens, when we also struggle with doubts of various kinds? Let me commend the method of J. Gresham Machen. While Machen, and he should be a household word for our congregation, so I'm not even going to tell you who he is, but if you don't know, feel free to ask me. He just happens to be my favorite history uh, figure in church history uh, and a tremendous influence on my life. But let me commend his method. While Machen was a student in Germany, this would have been under the great liberals uh, in the um, 1920s. When he was there, he would go and sit under the leading liberal scholars such as uh, Wilhelm uh, Hermann, for example. And Hermann was very charismatic and very persuasive. And in class, he found these teachers to be winsome, They, of course, denied the historic Christian faith and wished to replace it with a vacuous moralism that wished to retain the teaching of Jesus without the Jesus of the New Testament. So what would Machen do? Machen would go back to his room and he would get out his New Testament and he would open it to the Gospel of Mark and he would read it straight through at a sitting. And then he would be at peace. It was possible... It was impossible for man to be the ultimate author of what he found in that gospel. And of course, his arguments and his books are very, very sophisticated regarding the origin of Paul's religion and the virgin birth of Christ and so forth. But his simple method in his personal life was to open the Bible and to read it. And so I commend to you to stay in the scriptures and find on its pages a Christ that mere man could never have invented. And then you will see that it is unbelievable that such a Christ would be held by death. And if you are with us tonight and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ went to a cross and died for sinners like us, and he rose from the dead bodily. And he not only invites you to himself, he commands you to come to him. He commands all men everywhere to repent. Because the issue here is not, first of all, intellectual. 
The issue is a heart turned from God that only can be turned toward him through what Jesus did for sinners. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Now next time we'll give attention to Paul's meeting with the risen Lord and then we'll draw our uh, little series on the resurrection to a close and return to our usual sermonic form on Sunday evenings.